0: This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 54, with Stacey London. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we're you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneur lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. What is up, everyone? Welcome to this week's episode of Shop Talk Radio. My name is Nick Onkin, your host. And this week we have Stacy London on the show, which I'm very excited about. But before we get into it, a little update. I just spent this weekend actually painting the interior of my friend's office um, with some new art. We've been taking the hand-drawn type quotes to a larger scale and integrating some things from my new brand, Neon. I'm very excited about. So you can check that out on Instagram, at Nick Gonkin. But let me tell you a little bit about Stacy before we jump in. Stacy is an amazing human. First of all, her energy is infectious. And I met her through another Shop Talk Radio guest, Max Lugavere. You can check his episode out at shoptalkradio.com slash EP32. And Max is a good homie, talks about Breadhead, his new documentary. But we all got together at the Soho House a few months ago and we all just really clicked and I realized how infectious Stacy's energy is. She, she's an amazing person, but if you don't know who she is, she is a fashion stylist consultant and has a couple had a couple shows on TLC. The latest one being Love, Lust, or Run, which is in production. She was the host of What Not to Wear as well. She styled people like Kate Winslet and Liv Tyler. She was the brand ambassador for Pantene. And now she's got some exciting new things coming up and she will be a host on The View. Very exciting news. That news just dropped this week, actually. Look it up online. I'm really excited about today's episode because we dive in deep and Stacy really opens up, which is very, very special. We talk about her story and how she grew up and the things that she went through and how she has gotten to where she's gotten. And it's mind over matter. As with anything, her mindsets are very strong. And we get to talk about that as much as many more things. So with that, I introduce you to the one and only Stacey London. What's up everyone? Today we have Stacey London on the show, the amazing Stacey. She is stylist extraordinaire, has a couple books, has a TV show, no big deal. NBD, NBD. Really. <laughs> Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm so excited to get into this. We are new friend, new friends. We, we are. Met, this, met this weekend, and now we're here.
1: We are. <laughs> we, we, we we started at the weekend. Now we're here. Um, yeah. No. It's it's kind of amazing. I I feel like it was really fated that we met each other. There's a lot about your like life philosophy that I ascribe to in my own style philosophy and life philosophy. Yeah. Um. I guess I should say, should I should I say that I'm I'm the host of a show called Love, Lust, or Run on TLC? Yeah. I used to be the co-host of What Not to Wear, which is a, went on for 10 years, so I guess people really know me from that. And I can't say that I love Lust, like, Love, Lust, or... <laughs> I can't say that I love <laughs> Lust, Love, Run, you know, Love, Lust, Run as a title because I feel like it's very confusing. It doesn't really explain what it is. Yeah. Um, but the idea of the title is what the general opinion in terms of just random public opinion, mm-hmm. whether when they look at you, they love or lust or, or want to run from your style. Mm. Um, which in one sense, I don't give a shit about, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, who cares what other people think as long as you're happy, but there's a problem when, uh, when your style sort of gives out a message to people that doesn't help you get what you want. Mm. You know, it's sort of like the theory of being nice to people You know, it helps you get people to like you more and want to do things for you or with you or marry you or give you a job or whatever. Yeah. Um, And if you're not nice, you know, people kind of want, you know, just don't want to be around you. Right. So if you appear in a way that can be um, unhelpful. Thanks, guys. Those were the dudes downstairs. They're super cute. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, my, my feeling about it is is that, like, the first thing that we see, we make judgments in the first three seconds that you see a person that's lizard brain. It's been since humans have been around. Um, you want to make sure that what you want to say to the world is actually what the world is translating. And so that mm. everybody's on the same page and that you have control over the image that you put out there so you get what you want.
0: Mm, I like it. Well, let's, let's kind of paint a picture. So you have, you're, you're working on your second show. Yes. And you have how, it's two books,
1: three books. Um, yes, I co wrote. <laughs> I co wrote a book with my um, old co host, Clinton Kelly, uh, called "Dress Your Best," which is really about the geometry of dressing body types. It was like a real primer for people who didn't necessarily know what they wanted their style to be. Mm. Um, because I always recommend to people when when you're not sure what your vibe is, right? Mm. You know, like when you don't know what what you want your style to say or what your passion is or what your tribe looks like, Mm -hmm. then you always start with what fits you best. That's how, that's how you develop a style over time is by finding, um, and understanding how your body is shaped Mm -hmm. and then being able to dress it in a way that first feels good to you. And then you can build on that and create a style out of it. Um, so that it was just a body primer. It was a way to dress. And then I wrote the truth about style which is um, a case study of nine women, all whom had uh, issues more about obstacles, why they couldn't get to their best fashion self. Mm. And um, my sort of analysis of how to uh, redirect their perspective to change the yeah. problem. And, and ultimately change the way they see themselves. Because what I really believe is that what style is fantastic as, as a tool mm-hmm. is that it is a radically quick way for people to see themselves differently. Mm. If you, uh, wear jeans and a t-shirt all the time, then if I put you in a tux and, or I don't know, a glitter onesie, like you will feel and look different. Right. And, (laughs) and you will feel and look different when you look at yourself. So part of this is that it's, it's about sort of, um, the fact that we get so caught up in believing who we are So sure that we know that if somebody radically transforms you, it kind of shakes up your brain in Mm. a way that your brain can't catch up quite fast enough. Yeah. So first you have to see yourself differently and then you can feel something different. Mm. And if you can feel something different, I think you can, you can process it psychologically and you can think about it differently and then you can believe something new to be true. Mm. And so for all the negative messages that loop in all of our heads about what we're not, what we can't do, what we won't try, um, I try to use style to kind of um, dislodge that kind of negativity.
0: Mm, Very good. Okay. So I want to jump back and I want to hear your story. I want to tell these guys your story because it's such a powerful one. And so I would love it if you could just kind of start from how you where you started, Mm -hmm. how you grew up Mm -hmm. and then bring us to now.
1: Sure. Um, well, it was, it's been a long road now that it's my birthday today. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday. Um, Thank you very much. Um, but I, you know, I realize now that Steve Jobs quote about sort of being able to connect the dots backwards, um, is so meaningful to me and is so, um, exemplary of sort of the way my life came about. Mm. And, uh, I grew up in New York city. I, you know, had middle class, upper middle class parents. I don't Mm -hmm. know, whatever. My dad's a professor. Well, he started as a professor and my mom was a stay at home mom for a while. Mm -hmm. And, um, when I was about four, I was uh, diagnosed with, um, an autoimmune skin disease called psoriasis. Mm -hmm. And at first the, the thing was that you couldn't see it. It was behind my ear. It felt like chicken skin. And I remember like trying to pull the bumps off thinking like, I, I, you know, I don't know that it was like a sunburn or something and, um, went to a dermatologist and was diagnosed. And I remember thinking that the biggest problem, um, wasn't that people could see it, but that I was diagnosed with a chronic disease that was never going to go away. Mm. And that from that moment on, you know, my parents were anxious. Everybody was so anxious about it. And I was so little mm. that all I could take away from it was that something was wrong with me. Mm. That belief was, you know, internalized very early in my life. Yeah, And I guess it was there even before my skin got really bad. But my, when I was 11, I had strep throat something like 18 times in one year. Oof. And if, anybody had really been thinking, or if, I don't know, medical technology and and research was where it is today, I think they would have said, wow, her, her tonsils are chronically infected with strep. Strep can, uh, inflame autoimmune diseases. Nobody knew that then they should have taken out my tonsils, but (laughs) no one did. And, uh, as a result, I wound up with, um, a very, very severe case of psoriasis where I was basically covered in scales from the neck down. Ooh. So now, um, and I got it so thick in my scalp, it was like peanut brittle is the way I have often described it. And um, and one of the things about it was that I went from knowing that something was wrong with me, right? Believing that something was wrong with me to having other people treat me like mm. there was something wrong with me because, you know, kids are not kind to at that age. And they were afraid of what they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And I was constantly wearing turtlenecks and long pants, even in the summer. But of course you had to be careful that the turtlenecks weren't black because then it was like a snowstorm of dandruff and flakes and scales. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was just no way to fit in. I mean, I just, I had super long hair that I had to cut into a crew cut um, basically for the uh, medication for my scalp, which was, um, incredibly thick and gooey. And the only way to get it out was to scrub it out with boric acid. So my mom just didn't want to deal with my hair anymore. I mean, just all, everything about it felt so traumatic. And for an 11 year old girl who I guess was like, you know, sort of, prepubescent and, you know, when things, boys, everything was starting to matter. It was a really tough time, a Mm. really tough time. And even when we got the skin sort of under control and I still had it, but I was uh, taking topical steroids, you know, I was putting them on my skin to make them better and it wasn't working entirely. There was a a point where I could go back to school and know that I wasn't going to infect anybody and that I didn't Mm. have anything terrible. Like we had really sussed out what it was. I couldn't go back. I would get like within a hundred feet of the door and I would have a panic attack because Mm. I was so afraid of what would be said to me of how somebody would hurt me or what they would do. So I missed almost all of sixth grade um, and luckily transferred schools after that. But it left me in a very interesting situation. The medicine that finally cleared up the skin disease Um, was so powerful that Mm. it started to thin my skin and my skin started to split everywhere like a zipper. So I have these kind of (sighs) awesome scars everywhere and like that. I don't know if you can see Oh, wow. But I have like... I have a couple of them that you can see. That's crazy. Even though your audience can't see them. But, um, so they, they split through several levels of skin, but not all the way, but that was incredibly painful. And then, you know, when we asked my dermatologist about that, may he rest in hell, he, um, he said, oh, well she can get skin grafts when she's older as if that, that was going to be a fun option. Anyway, it took a long time, um, for my skin to heal. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time for uh, the scars to kind of settle, but they're still there. And, you know, there was an emotional scar, I think associated with that whole time period. And, you know, PS, I finally had to have my tonsils taken out when I was 17 because they just realized that even though I'd been on antibiotics for something like three years straight, I I had chronic strep and it was causing all sorts of problems. Wow. So, um, it was about that time, sixteen seventeen, that I started to get really interested in fashion. And I don't think that's by accident now, because <laughs> looking back, you can kind of see how somebody who felt like a monster and kind of looked like a monster for mm-hmm. a while... Um, would want to do something that was pretty and sparkly and perfect and shiny. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who knew about airbrushing back then? I just thought everybody was perfect in fashion. <laughs> and that's what I wanted. I, I wanted that. I wanted to be, surround myself with that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I just thought at the time that I was interested in clothes and I liked shoes. But I think it was more than that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I went to Vassar for college, but my dad was very adamant that I get a liberal arts education and that I learn how to think and how to write and how to read and how to think critically. Um, so I majored in philosophy and literature and did a lot with psychology as Mm. well. Um, mostly German, uh, 20th century. And, uh, but every summer I would go and I would work for a fashion house or I would go and I would work for a magazine. So I was, you know, gaining the experience that I would need to be able to apply for a Mm. job. And um, actually, the way I got my first job was kind of a joke in that my dad had a friend who had a friend who knew someone who said (laughs) that I could do a practice interview job interview at Random House when um, Random House was then owned by Condé Nast. And so I went in to meet with somebody and they make you take a typing test and, um, you know, they make you tape, type for what, I don't know, two minutes or a minute or something. And I think I, I got seven words right. And every, all the others were misspelled. <laughs> like, I mean, it was a joke. And the guy who gave me the test was like, what are you doing here? Like, clearly you don't want to be in books. You can't even type. And I said, I don't, I want to, I want to I wanna be in fashion <laughs> And so he called his counterpart at um, Condi Nast, who was in HR. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, we have no positions, but she can come in for a practice interview. And it turns out that she had gone to Vassar mm-hmm. and we bonded over that. And uh, and then she called me a couple of days later and said, could you come work at Vogue as a fashion assistant? Oh, wow. So that was my first job out of school.
0: That's that's an intense, intense job.
1: It was super intense. And I think the one thing that I remember most about it was that I wish I hadn't gone to college because why did I waste my time with Nietzsche (sighs) and Heidegger when I needed to be concerned with like Karl Lagerfeld and like Mugler and, you know, Prada. (laughs) And, you know, I was like, you know, Nietzsche this. And they were like, oh, what was his last collection like? You know, just there wasn't a direct a connection between the two things, and I—I yeah. I was worried that I had sort of lost time and ground by going to college mm-hmm. when I could have just gotten into fashion. Yeah. But obviously, that 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 wound up working for me much later in life. Yeah. And so I was a fashion assistant at Vogue and at Mademoiselle um, for five years, I guess five and a half years. Then I went mm-hmm. freelance as an assistant. Um, I worked for every stylist that mattered. I mean, every editor that I admired, the first photographer I ever worked with was Irving Penn. No kidding. Who was one of the most wonderful men I've ever had the honor to get to know or meet or see work. And, um, yeah, I, there was nobody I didn't get to work with, and it was just an incredible time. But then I also realized I was either going to become like the world's best fashion assistant, you know, and just get volleyed around by the really good <laughs> stylists, or I was going to try it on my own. Mm. And so I starved for about six months. I, like I, w- I said, <laughs> no to every assistant job until people started throwing me bones to style. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I started working for um, an Italian magazine called D that needed a New York editors. So I started doing stuff for them here. Mm. And then about a year after that, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who said, hey, my sister was just promoted to fashion director at Mademoiselle. Uh, she needs somebody to replace her. And so um, I became the senior fashion editor at Mademoiselle. May, no she, may she rest in peace. <laughs> um, and I was there for four years. And then I got fired, which I... Highly recommend everybody do. Get fired. Get fired as many times as you possibly can. (laughs) It's the best, most like revelatory experience I've ever Mm. had. Because for me, I I I think I've always been somewhat of a overachiever, or not even, I just I always beat myself up. I'm never doing well enough. Mm -hmm. And to get fired was so mind blowing. I mean, I, my ego was just shot to hell. <laughs> it was so humbling, but it also made me realize that I had been staying in a job because it was safe. And because I knew that I was bored and, and I, two years before that, but I wouldn't leave because it's nice to have insurance. And it was like cool mm. to have car service late at night. And <laughs> I realized very quickly that I had gotten super lazy. Mm-hmm. I'd gotten very comfortable, um, in a way that, I actually don't think benefits anybody. Yeah. And, uh, and so I got fired and I thought I really wanted to stop styling. And so I freelanced for about a year, but I started doing commercials. I started styling real people. Um, I did, you know, commercial ads for like banks where it wasn't a supermodel you were dressing. It was like a mom style actor, you know? So I learned to dress a lot of different body types. And then I started to work with different advertising agencies where the Women from the agencies who had money but no time
2: mm. would
1: ask me to shop for them. So I started doing, uh, I guess, a personal shopping service. Yeah. But more than that, I started, I would start off by going into their closets and saying, you got to get rid of this. Let's give this to charity. Let's sell this. Let's, mm. you know, you need room. Put this away for five years. You're missing this, 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 and this. There are all the holes in your closet. And then I would go shopping for them and I would fill in all the blanks. Wow. And I called it wardrobe renovation. <laughs> then I get a phone call. Uh, I, I I guess, I don't know. I must've been about 31 Saying would I audition for a television show that some I I didn't understand BBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, something with a C was a production (laughs) company that wanted um, a freelance stylist or an editor who had worked with models, had worked in editorial, had done um, like celebrity covers, had worked with real people and could talk a lot without a script. (laughs) And um, I think that last part was the reason my agent said, we know who you should talk to. (laughs) So um, I went in and I auditioned and I really didn't care about it. And I didn't, and then I started to hear that every single freelance stylist in New York city had auditioned for this show that I heard was a version of an English show called what not to wear. And uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe it was, I think it was about eight months of back and forth and screen tests and all of this stuff. And, uh, and I was in Spain with my family. I was in Marbella and I got a phone call from my agent saying, you know, you're like in the top 27 first choices, <laughs> I'm like top, top 27. Maybe I would care if it was top 10, but 27 <laughs> or whatever. She said, you have to come back tomorrow. They're going to have a cocktail party and they want to see how all 27 of you interact and, in, you know, chemistry testing. Hmm. But it was interesting. They wanted to do it at a cocktail party where everybody just got shit faced. So I was like, I don't know how well that chemistry test is going to go. But I said, look, they already have me on camera. They've had me for four, you know, four different tests. They know what I'm like. I just I'm I'm in Marbella. I'm in Spain with my family. I'm not coming back. Forget it. And my agent was like, okay, I get it. I understand. And I hung up the phone. And my stepmother, who happened to be sitting there at the time, said to me, you are full of shit. And we are putting you (sighs) on a plane tomorrow. Because you're going to go back. And you're going to screen test for that. And you are going to get that job. And it is going to change your life. And she was... 100% 100% correct. I got the job and it 100% changed my life. I thought I was going to do one season of 11 episodes and then I'd be able to charge people more because I could say that I was on television, like for <laughs> styling them, you know? Um, and one episode, one season actually turned into a second season that started off as 15 episodes. They wanted to keep me and they fired my co-host mm. and we went on the search for a new one. Wow. And when we found Clinton Kelly, who was my co-host on What Not to Wear, uh, we knew we had chemistry right away. It was just a really good match. And um, all of a sudden, season two turned into 50 episodes mm. and season three was 60. Wow. And then we started to get some attention and then I I got to go on Oprah and then Oprah kept having me back and then <laughs> I started to do the Today Show and then I started to do Access Hollywood and no Red Carpets and no big deal. I mean, MBD, MBD. Um, I wrote a book, you know, and then I started doing commercial campaigns. So I did Dr. Scholes and I did Woolite and I did Lee Jeans and I did Pantene, which was the biggest and most a uh, special campaign for me because mm. here I am, you know, I'm okay looking. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not like I'm coyote ugly. Like you need to put a paper <laughs> bag over my head or anything, but you know, I'm not a six feet tall and a hundred pounds. And at, well, let's see, how old was I? Maybe 39. Mm. I got asked to do this campaign and I did it for three and a half years. Wow. And it was a beauty campaign and I have a big nose and, it was just like I've, I felt really honored to be a real person mm-hmm. who could represent a beauty product and do it in a way that felt so honest and so real. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably one of my proudest achievements. I awesome. mean, a- along with fitting Oprah in jeans, that, that ranks <laughs> pretty high. That's, that's both pretty high. Yeah. Very high. Yeah. I mean, it just and, you know, all of that was due to uh, what not to wear really hitting a chord mm. with people. And part of that chord, I think was that what I consider to be really great television and television is a fantastic medium because it reaches so many people, Mm -hmm. unless it's somebody like you, Nick, who's like, can I watch that online? (laughs) But a lot of people like television. And, um, is it okay if I take a sip of this wonderful, fabulous beverage powered by Runa, powered by Runa. (laughs) Um, But yeah, television is a wonderful medium. And what I realized from that experience was that there are three things that you would love for television to do Mm. in in reality television, uh, not scripted necessarily, but we knew that it was going to be entertaining. I call it the three E's. Um, Mm. I knew it was going to be entertaining. Everybody was watching for us to be funny and snarky and, you know, these people... And what not to wear, if you're not familiar with the show, were nominated by their friends and family secretly. And we would come and surprise them Mm. and say, you've been nominated and you're coming to New York and we're giving you $5,000 and we're going to teach you to dress better. And in the meantime, we would really sort of rank on their style and we would break them down (laughs) to build them back up. And so we all knew it was going to be entertaining. And then what was interesting was that we were giving such kind of easy information to take with you to go shopping no matter who you were
2: yeah.
1: um that it became educational on mm. top of being entertaining but what nobody counted on was how emotional it was going to be mm. and people would see these these makeovers these like sort of final results and they would um they would be i mean people would cry at home people would cry in the studio clinton and i would get teary i mean it was it, it is a true sense of hope and transformation mm. in an hour and that's pretty hard to beat. I mean, I, I felt always that even when people thought we were being mean, it took a while for people to understand that what we were doing was actually really um, uh, what I consider to be what I would want from anybody to do to me. Constructive criticism it can be kindness. Yeah. Um, and the, the reason that I see a difference between criticism and constructive criticism is that when you offer constructive criticism, you have to offer an alternative. You have to give people a choice in saying, you know, that's not about taste. I can't argue with you on the basis of taste. I, I can't say my taste is better than yours because what does that mean? I mean, right. taste is a personal preference. But when it comes to proving that something can technically look better on your body or make you look younger or make you look thinner or, you know, make you look more sophisticated, it's pretty easy to do if you haven't an, an alternative that you can show somebody. Mm. So little by little, the show really gained um, quite an incredible following and reputation. And the funny thing for me was that after all that time that I'd been in magazines and in fashion, which was, I guess, a total of 13, 14 years, I got, um, I went through periods of being incredibly narcissistic and vain Mm. because... It was the fashion industry and it's an industry that's built on insecurity. So, yeah. you know, if you're insecure, well, good for you. Cause that's, <laughs> you're going to get even more self-involved and probably more insecure because that's what the industry is hoping for that you'll yeah. buy into every new trend that you'll buy every new beauty product. Mm. And I found myself, um, you know, also at stages getting very materialistic. Yeah. And then it wasn't until I got to what not to wear that, I started to relate to people in a very different kind of way Mm. that wasn't based on breaking them down to make them insecure. It was breaking them down to understand and empathize with their insecurity so that we could actually solve that insecurity Mm. or at least at least make it something manageable for people. Yeah. And Luckily for me here, I'd had a degree in philosophy and psychology and literature, which wound up being incredibly helpful when talking to real people and also made me a much more compassionate person.
0: Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I love that. And I want to go back and kind of jump into, you know, as you, you know, you had the, the skin disorder and then you kind of moved into college and how, Kind of want to hear a little bit about the emotional effects that that had on you. And like, how did you break through that?
1: Yeah. Um, it, well, it's a it's a great question. I mean, emotionally, I think that um, I had a very hard time with the skin disease and I was bullied quite a bit. Mm. And, you know, I am now involved in a zillion anti-bullying campaigns because yeah. I feel so strongly about it and I see what it does to children. And I remember thinking when I had psoriasis, like at its worst, everybody kept saying to me, every doctor said, you know, well, don't worry, you know, it's not life-threatening. And I, you know, it's not going to kill you. And my feeling was I wished that it would because Mm. it was so humiliating to constantly be stared at and to constantly be kind of looked at with this horror that when I started to get better, instead of being more kind and more compassionate with people, I was cruel. I turned into a real bully. Mm. I turned all of that anger and all that sort of, I think, real depression, you know, which I had on myself, Mm -hmm. um, and I, I sort of started putting it out in the world on other people. Wow. And I didn't really take a whole lot of responsibility, even as a young adult, even in my 20s, for the amount of anger that I was feeling and that I was projecting onto others. Yeah. And it really wasn't until my 30s, and when I started to work on What Not to Wear, that I realized the reason that I could be compassionate and empathetic with the women that we were talking to was that it was like I was finally understanding what I was doing wrong with myself. Mm -hmm. And if I could be kind to them, then, you know, maybe I could find a way to be kinder to myself and be kinder to others in response to that. Right. So it was a really interesting learning process for me. You know, it started with watching people sort of beat themselves up and tell us why they didn't deserve to look good. Um, And feeling everything inside me revolt when, you know, people would say that about themselves and be like, how can you be so hard on yourself? And who cares if you've gained 20 pounds, you're a beautiful Mm -hmm. person. And like, you know, weight is a number, size is a number. You can't be psychologically attached to that. And I was like, oh my God, wait a second, hold on. (laughs) I do that to myself every day, you know, I worry about those things every single day. And I just get mad at myself that I'm not better Why aren't I kind too? Mm. And then the kinder that I could be to myself, the less anger I put out into the world in general. And I went from being somebody who was, you know, kind of an asshole maybe (laughs) um, to somebody who just is much more grateful and much more appreciative of like what my life has been able to teach me and then what I've been able to give other people because of it.
0: Yeah. So how did you... What was the process in letting all of that go?
1: Um, well, there were a couple things. I mean, I guess there was falling in love, which mm. was a big thing for me because obviously, as you can imagine, a girl who's had um, a skin disease and has scars all over her body doesn't really want to make out with the lights on. You know yeah. what I mean? So that was a little bit hard for me when I was in high school. Yeah. And when I got to college, my my first kind of, real love and boyfriend. Um, he thought my scars were beautiful. He mm. thought my scars were so beautiful that he photographed them for me. Wow. And I felt so seen and so loved. And that was a real revelation for me. Yeah. And then I guess it was much later in my thirties when I fell probably the hardest in love that I have fallen to date and we broke up mm. and I was standing in the shower and I was thinking about going back to another season of what not to wear. And I was getting very tired of it because I felt like I was being put in a box. You mm-hmm. know, I could only dress a certain way cause that's how Stacy dresses on what not to wear. And I was getting into more avant-garde fashion, but it w- wasn't cool for my, you know, persona on television. Mm. And, um, so I was starting to diverge a little bit from the person who I had to be on the show and I was getting a little bit sick of that. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm so sad. I've I've broken up with this person whom I loved so much. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to the show. I don't want to go back. Uh. And, all, and I was like, it's such a toxic environment. You know, we're all so fed up with it and the hours are crazy. And, you know, what's the point? And all of a sudden it was like my brain just like split open. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God the reason that you don't want to go back and the reason that that atmosphere is so toxic is because of you. Oof. And oof (laughs) is right. I had to sit down on the floor of the shower and I sobbed my eyes out. Wow. And I had to write a lot of apology letters. I had to write a lot of people and say, my behavior has not been okay. Like I Mm. am... I have been unaware of the way I've been taking my sadness out on other people or my anger out on other people. And that was really, uh, it was like transformative, life transformative. That's when things started to change for me. Mm. And I did really start to kind of enjoy and feel quite passionate and grateful again for the show. Like I had, you know, the first few years. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I started to get sick. And then Mm. something weird happened. I was tired all the time. My body hurt. I started gaining tons of weight. I was just exhausted. I couldn't fit into my high heels. Like I was always swollen and I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. Mm. And I went to see blood doctors and thyroid doctors and menopausal doctors. And I went to see, you know, I mean, naturopaths and everybody, nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. And it got so bad that the last probably two and a half years of what not to wear, um, I was just in pain all the time and Mm. couldn't figure it out. And, uh, I finally said, I, I have to leave the show Mm. and I've given, you know, I'm up for season 10,
0: (laughs) season 10. (laughs) And then I'm
1: out. I, 10's a nice round number. Um, but it's time for me to go like I, I don't feel like I have the energy to do this anymore. And I was like, maybe I'm just too old. I don't know. Television's shit. I mean, reality television is a tough schedule, people. (laughs) Like, it is, it is long hours. So, you know, I agreed that we would do the last episode, season 10. And um, within three months of my leaving the show, I finally got diagnosed it was so obvious, but I was finally diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, mm. um, the major symptoms of which are chronic fatigue and swelling and joint pain. And therefore, there's a lot of weight gain involved. And I was like, oh, my God, people told me that it was in my head. People told me I was depressed. This is the thing that I still have trouble about that aspect of it was that, you know, if women say something is wrong and nobody can find anything wrong, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're hysterical still. I mean, it's really, that, that really got me. I had one trainer who told me that he thought that everything that was going on with me was in my head and I fired him, Mm. you know, because I was like, you know, when something is wrong with you, even if it takes a long time to figure it out. Yeah. So, um, that changed my life. That got me on a completely different path where I changed my entire diet, Mm. uh, gluten free, dairy free, sugar free for the most part. (laughs) (laughs) Sugar's really a tough bitch to quit. I mean, God, it's, that's, that's a tough one. Yeah. Mostly alcohol free. But I started swimming and I started feeling a lot better. I started working on producing television projects. Mm. Um, And then I got asked to do Love Luster Run, which is also a makeover show, but with very young women, mostly young women, who don't really understand that what they think that they're doing is cool and rebellious is sort of getting in their own way. Mm. The great thing about this show is that they have to come to me and ask for help. Mm. I, they're not secretly being nominated. Nobody's ambushing them. They are at a stage where they feel like they want to change and don't know how. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being um, a woman of experience, I'd like to share that knowledge and that uh, power with women so that they do feel empowered yeah. and it really is I think very much about you know being the individual you are and being and living in the world in which you find yourself yeah so it's about walking that line between being a free spirit because I do believe that we should have free spirits in the world and I don't believe that everybody has to wear a suit or be conventional mm-hmm. you but you want to walk the line that even in the way that you present yourself, you're being true to yourself and getting what you want. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, if you, if you, conform to the way people want you to be, you will always feel sort of imprisoned by that. Mm -hmm. And if you allow yourself to be just totally free and not sort of interacting with any visual currency in society, then I think you lessen your chances for opportunity Mm -hmm. and why close doors before they're even open to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, my, my perspective has always been that style is, should, should be. Manifestation of how you're feeling, not in need of validation.
1: Right. Well, there are a couple of things I think about that. Validation is a tricky word, right? Because, and and so is how you're feeling. And um, also if you know like whether or not your style, you know, I mean it takes kind of, this is what I love about my career is that working in magazines, working with the best stylists and photographers in the world and understanding the craft of styling uh, models and real people and celebrities and the whole gamut, boys and, you know, yeah. big guys and, you know, whatever. I did a high C commercial where, you know, I dress kids. <laughs> um, but, but the, the thing about that is that it really taught me an incredible professional skill set to understand what it means to fit one's body in clothing mm. right and really like make even you know the most inexpensive piece of clothing look like a million bucks or mm. take vintage and rework it and be able to sort of use that professional skill set and then be able to kind of psychologically analyze um people's insecurities based on the fact that I have so many yeah. it takes a professional skill set and a personal set of of, <laughs> of insecurity to really be able to have that conversation with someone and say, yes, okay, you want you don't care about validation, but you have in student loans, and you insist on dressing in a way that is scaring people, right? And nobody wants to give you a job, even though you have a degree and you Mm. have all this, you know, you look like you could be on drugs. You've got green hair. You wear contacts that black out your eyes. You know, you wear blue lipstick and you want people to take you seriously, That's when I say, like, okay, well, what what does it mean for validation, right? You know that you want to make money. You want to pay off those student loans. Where is the fine line between being that individual that you want to be, Mm -hmm. right, and also understanding the motivation for the way that you dress because right. a lot of people don't recognize that they're dressing out of anger or out of fear or out of perfectionism. Interesting. And that once you're slightly more self-aware, you don't necessarily have to feel like it's about validation or not validation. It's that you're self-validated in a way because you've you've done the you've done the homework, you've done mm-hmm. the research, you've checked to see whether or not you're dressing out of some um unconscious feeling mm. or if you're fully aware and conscious and awake Of what it is you're trying to say. And I wouldn't say that everybody is there. So that's when you run into problems, right? Fashion Mm -hmm. is for everybody. I mean, style fashion is an industry, but style is for everybody. Right. And I believe you should express yourself, but you need to know that what you're expressing is what you, you mean to express. There has to be intention and purpose Mm. with what you're expressing, which is all about self-knowledge.
0: Yeah. So how do you, uh, what, what kind of questions does one ask themselves to dive deeper into the motivation of why they dress the way they do?
1: Well, I always ask people, you know, when did you start dressing in a particular way? Like if you only wear black and I find um, a lot of alt girls, you know, start piercings and tattoos and color their hair and only wear black and everything is ripped. And, you know, I'm, I'm making generalizations here, people. Okay. This is just, it's not, that I think every alt girl is like that. <laughs> um, you know, I consider myself to be an alt girl because I have a, I have a silver stripe in my hair, but I've had that since I was 11 actually. Um, but anyway, that's not my point. My point is just that when I see somebody who's dressing to an extreme, whether it's punk or goth or, you know, hippie or vintage or just wild. Yeah. I ask them why I ask them what it is, you know, that they are saying about themselves, what it is they think they're saying. And that's when, you know, something like just taking a cross section of people, general public and saying, well, this is the way other people who don't know you, Mm -hmm. right, can't offer you anything, but don't know you see you, then where's the disconnect, right? If you're so sure that this is what you're saying to the world, why aren't people picking it up? Mm. and a lot of people will say to me, well, I don't care about those people. Those are, they don't mean anything to me. I know what I'm saying. And then we start to unpack it. Mm. So it's a question of, well, when did you start dressing this way? And why did you start dressing this way? And nine times out of 10, there's a real story there. Mm. Bullying is a huge aspect of it that people are bullied for being different. So they go even further and they isolate and they just make themselves because of anger or sadness. Mm -hmm. Um, or they want to dress in a way that's almost like what I call defensive dressing mm-hmm. so that people can't hurt them. They they do the craziest thing before anybody can say anything about them. Or they dress in a very wild way to distract from who they are so that you don't see them. You see the artifice that mm. they want you to see. Wow. So in some ways, that's armor, right? And if you've mm. been hurt or or if you have insecurities, and I don't know anybody on the planet who doesn't, you can, you can stave them off by almost anticipating what people will say about you and proving them right. Interesting. Or you can say, I'm not going to dress defensively. I'm going to dress in a way that is inviting, that will attract people, that will make me seem approachable. I'm going to put my guard down which may mean you just take off, you know, all the spikes and mm. maybe, you know, all the black and just allow people to see you for who you are. And maybe that doesn't mean tons of makeup. Maybe it means a lighter touch. Maybe mm. it means instead of green hair, lavender hair. I'm not saying that it's it's not uh being a free spirit. I'm saying It's the, you know, how heavy the hand is with which you do it and what your true motivation is Mm. for doing it. You know, a lot of people come in and they're like, well, I want to look like Kim Kardashian. I'm like, really? Okay. Well, you know, are you going for a reality show? Is that, is that what you're interested (laughs) in? No, I just want to look like her. And I'm like, okay, but you're you, you don't have to look, you know, you don't have to look like Kim Kardashian. If you want a more provocative, more sexy, more sleek style, let's talk about you getting that style, not looking like Kim Kardashian. And, you know, people will come in and say to me, oh, well, I want to be a rock star, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, great. But you want to be a rock star that people are going to hire for gigs. So like when you get to be, you know, Pink or Nicki Minaj, dress any way you want. But like in the meantime, give people something, a little bit of something that they feel like they can mold or hold on to, or that there's more um, fluidity mm-hmm. in, in the way that you style yourself. It's always to the benefit of the person. That's what I want.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, that's the way, that's the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah, You have to like be you.
1: Yes. You have to be you. And the, the thing about individuality is there's, there is this sense of you have to be you. And it's funny if you ask people who are much younger, you know, in their teens and their twenties, they'll be like, it doesn't matter what you wear. Don't judge people for who, you know, what they look like, judge them for who they are. And I'm, I'm like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Except that your brain physically, biologically, chemically, Cannot do that. Right. So I'm not saying that wouldn't it be great if we were in a world where nobody got judged, but it doesn't work that way. So you have to f- figure out a way to play the game that mm-hmm. allows you to be true to yourself and succeed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So how did you, I mean, I guess you became pretty self aware going through this whole process through the show. I mean, you you strike me as a very self-aware person.
1: I I feel much more self-aware and, and, uh, you know, I have totally fully willing to admit that I turned 46 today. So, I mean, (laughs) I'm just happy that I became aware at some point before I'm dead, (laughs) even if it took me this long. Um, but I, it's been a gradual process and I really don't think, um, that I started to be self-aware until I was really in my mid to late Mm thirties. It's really taken me a long time to understand my motivation for why I care about style, uh, what I understand to be true about fashion as an industry, what I understand to be true about humans Mm -hmm. and what we all have in common and why compassion and empathy is so important and why, um, relating to people is so important rather than isolating. Mm. And that anger, there's a way to, there's a way to express anger. There's a way to sort of expunge anger that doesn't make you a person that people don't want to get to know. Right. That doesn't make you a person that people are afraid of or that people feel is sort of like, Oh, you know, let, who wants to invite her Debbie Downer, you know, and part of it is also in recognizing, um, Something that I say in The Truth About Style is that if you are getting overwhelmed with the way that you look, if you are really just so sad with the way that you're feeling about yourself, then you have to pull yourself away from the mirror. You have to stop looking and you have to find your reflection in the eyes of people who love you Mm. and you have to give back to them. Because that mm. cycle is that tribe, whether it's your, your actual family or your, you know, intentional chosen family, whatever it is, those are the people who are going to fuel you uh, to be you. Yeah,
0: that's great. That's great.
1: So, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of self-aware now. I still make <laughs> mistakes. Don't get me wrong.
0: Well, I mean, self-awareness is such a huge, I, I think it's a key, uh, the key to living because if you, if you're self-aware of who you are and what your, your motivations and your intentions then you can change. You can transform.
1: And absolutely. And being aware requires evolution and change constantly. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not something like you decide who you are one day and that's it. You know, you're like, okay, done deal. You know, I mean, you're going to be somebody different at 25 than Mm -hmm. you are at 45. And believe me, I have the experience now to tell you that that's true. (laughs) And, um, and, and, you know, I grapple. It's very funny. I am, I am now working currently on the show with uh, one I don't call on What Not to Where we used to call our quote unquote victims. We used to call them um, <laughs> contributors, right? This, this contributor is going to be on the show this week. Yeah. But I don't call the people on Love Lester run contributors. I call them collaborators because mm. I'm not out to change them. I'm out to get them to um, at least see themselves in a way that is different than they see themselves now so that they understand there are options and opportunities that they may not have thought of. And also to um, allow them to evolve into who they want to be next. Mm. And I consider that actually a real honor to be able to do, but also a real process. Some people respond really well to it and others don't. And, you know, I can't insert myself into somebody's life and be like, okay, that's it. It's my way or the highway. You always want to come to, a place that feels like a true happy medium and a real collaboration. I mean, with anybody, whether, whether you're styling them or working with them or, or what. And you know, it also means taking your experience and applying it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So if you're a great stylist, you're never going to impose your style on another person. You have to, a great stylist can interpret a person and find their style, Mm. help them find it and, and really be able to show it and see it.
0: That's great. That's great. Uh, Let's talk about uh, the truth about style.
1: Yeah. Uh, The book came out a while ago. I did like a big book tour and that was kind of fun. Um, And I'm working on a new one now.
0: That's, that's awesome. So I want to know what your, your top three favorite truths are. Oh, in the gosh. book,
1: okay. Um, God, blah. I'm like, what did what did I write about? Um, <laughs> uh, okay, well, I said that style and fashion are not the same things. Obviously, because I believe that fashion is the industry. Style starts with the individual, mm. and that that requires a lot of self knowledge and a lot of self contemplation. That's the hard part. Um, another thing that I don't really say is a truth in the book, but it's how I describe how I came to the idea of the book. Mm is that I was at dinner, uh, at uh, very good friends of mine, uh, they live in L.A., and they have three children. And these children are so well-behaved, and at the time they were all under, I think, seven, and they were wonderful to have dinner with. And they were so trusting and so excited to meet me. You know, it's just bizarre. Like you, you see kids being much more defensive or shy or or wild. And they were just like these lovely miniature grownups. <laughs> and I, I was really flipped out by it. And I kept asking my friends, um, Molly and David, how did you raise children like this? Like they're inquisitive and they're thoughtful. And we mm. sat down to dinner and it was like, how was your day? And they were able to really talk about what was interesting to them and what they didn't like. And, you know, I'm sitting there like, what in the ha- Who, what, this is like the twilight dome. And David said to me, well, we have one rule in our house. And, uh, I said, what's the rule? And he said, he asked his five-year-old son to tell me, and this little boy said, yes. And, mm. and I sat there waiting for the, Well, what comes after and, right? Yes, and what? (laughs) And they said, no, it's just yes, and, which is um, a term from improv, as it turns out. And it means that you have to accept what's given to you and then build upon it. So, for example, right, in in an improv scene, if I said to you, here's a cat, and you say, no, no, it isn't, or no, I don't want that cat, you've basically shut down the scene. There's nowhere for it to go. (laughs) I mean, you know, obviously we could get into a fight about whether a cat is actually in the room or not, which I guess is one way to do it. But, <laughs> but normally in improv, what you would do is say, God, thank you so much. This cat is the most gorgeous tabby cat, and he weighs 35 pounds, and he also he can speak English and has a private detective agency and loves <laughs> opera, you know, whatever. You, you let your imagination run wild, but that's and. So you are accepting what's been given to you. And I thought, oh, my God, that's a that's a great style philosophy, accept what's been given to you, meaning accept your body, your body type, and, you know, what you're willing to do in terms of exercise and, and health for where you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the and is the proactive creation of mm. what you want to do with that knowledge. Mm. The yes is actually... The hardest part. The yes is self-acceptance and self-awareness. Mm. But once you get past that, the and is all about the creativity and the beauty of becoming who you want to be constantly, constantly becoming. Mm. You know, you don't stop becoming. So yes, and is a is a not only a style philosophy, it's a life philosophy. I mean, it it is exactly the way I I hope to be, both, you know, in the way I approach style and in the way I approach you know, everything that comes up. I mean, it's a, it's also a very good way when you know that you have to accept what's been given to you. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a great way to deal with things that aren't great. Yeah. You know, life is hard (laughs) and I mean, there's just no getting around it. And, you know, the price of love is grief and there's a lot in, in life that's, that's very hard to deal with and we Mm -hmm. lose people or we miss opportunities or we make mistakes we wish we hadn't but being able to accept rather than regret or chastise or constantly beat ourselves up, mm-hmm. being able to accept and then move forward proactively. That's, that's the, the best way to live life. I mean, I can't think of anything better.
0: Yeah. That's the only way.
1: <laughs> yeah. If you're going to enjoy it and not be miserable. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are plenty of people who are like, very happy being miserable and, you know, good for them. But it's also about safety and comfort. And, you know, we, we tend to stick with what we know, whether, whether or not that's really what we love or what excites us, because we're so afraid of the unknown and we're afraid of making mistakes. Yeah. But I say, make the mistakes, be messy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I have this, I don't know if you've seen my hashtag hashtag create your moments.
1: Yes. I've seen your hashtag.
0: So it is, you know, there's funny, we came up with this idea of there's, you're either like Wally gagging Uh or you're creating your moments. Yeah. And it's one or the other. I mean, and we all do it. I mean, I, sometimes I'm Wally gagging and you know, when you're just like sitting and like wallowing in circumstance and just like, yeah, you know, but then we also, we have the power to choose to create our moments, create our life. And it's a conscious choice every day.
1: Every day. I, I mean, I, I feel very strongly about that in every way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's about, you know, creating moments and it's about creating yourself. Mm-hmm. And that also, sometimes that requires you to be passive. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you are always constantly doing something. Right, You have to, have those quiet moments of reflection, I think in order to allow things to kind of be absorbed by you, you Mm -hmm. you know, you need to observe and understand and allow things to Mm -hmm. happen to you in order to, you know, be able to understand yourself better.
0: Yeah. But also that is a conscious creative choice in allowing that to happen.
1: Yes. And so, you know, whereas I used to have these moments where I would beat myself up if I spent all Saturday lying on the couch, watching TV now I'm like you're recharging. You are basically just like recharging. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I will binge watch amazing television, <laughs> and I will get so excited about scripted TV, or I'll get so excited about an actor or something that just inspires me. Mm-hmm. That it's not that I've wasted my time. It's not that I like you know didn't do anything with my day. Yeah. I did exactly what I needed to do that day. So I guess it's also about you know giving yourself the conscious uh, permission to do what is best for you.
0: Absolutely. So you talked about similar life philosophies in the very beginning and yes, and is a big one. So I'd love to hear if there's anything more to your life philosophy, what is that?
1: Um, well, I guess, so that's a really interesting question. I don't know. I don't know if I've really thought about that. I mean, Uh. you know, I, 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 I actually, Lately, and this is not just lately, like as in, you know, last, this past week, but I would say in the last few years, I've gotten much more involved with charities and not-for-profits. Mm-hmm. And I've realized that so much of the way that we see ourselves literally and figuratively um, you know, comes from what we think that other people think about us that are status symbols, the things that are very easy to read, all of those judgments Mm -hmm. that you do see on the surface. And everybody's like, don't judge a book by its cover. Okay, I get (laughs) it. I got you. I, you know, I hear you. But what I do hear about that most importantly is that actions and what you do are always going to be, you know, just as important, you know, as what you say and how you look like they all have to be in accordance with each other. Mm -hmm. So I have really started to kind of try and put not just my money, but you know, my time and my energy where my mouth is Yeah, and, um, spend time working, you know, with kids and Mm anti-bullying and spend time empowering young women and spend time, um, being a role model that I didn't really feel I had growing up. Yeah. You know, my mom was like the frontline feminist, you know, she's the one who like really got down with the Gloria Steinem's and the Betty Friedan's. And in a funny kind of way, I feel like I, I am sort of the product of the fallout and maybe Mm. even some of the failures of feminism. Mm. And, you know, I'm the first generation of women who literally are completely self-sufficient. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I know that it's a true thing. Yeah. I know that I don't need uh, to get married. I don't need to have money. I mean, mm-hmm. to have somebody else make money for me. Um, I chose not to have children. It doesn't mean I couldn't adopt one if I wanted one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no reason that I'm bound by any um, history of woman as we ever perceived her before. It's like mm-hmm. a completely new frontier. And it's a little bit nerve wracking because there's this excitement about having that kind of freedom. And then there's, um, I think at least for me, there's this sense of, well, wait, did I, did I miss what is kind of most important, Mm. you know, that I didn't get married or that I didn't have kids. The things that we traditionally assume are the identities of women, Mm. um, by taking them away, what, what does that mean? What does that mean for me personally? Does that, do I feel loneliness? Do I feel this freedom to kind of go out in the world and kind of identify myself by uh, creating and supporting and cheering others and that it doesn't have to be about a nuclear family? Like um, I can see the world as my family yeah. um, and being able to be at home in any environment because you feel like there's always something to give. Yeah. And, you know, it was fun. I was just talking to one of my best friends about this yesterday, about like women traveling alone. You know, how, how far have we come? When I traveled alone at 19, I got harassed like pretty badly. And now it's like I understand what I can and can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel like this, there's this incredible freedom as a grown up being able to kind of travel the world myself and know that I don't need to be with somebody to do it. Yeah. If there are people along for the ride, great. But it's just that it's that line that I walk between feeling like a trailblazer and feeling like a little I don't know whether it's sorry for myself or worrying that other people see me mm-hmm. and see me and feel sorry for me or that I just since I didn't adhere to traditional values, it's very difficult to sort of estimate my value, yeah. right? Because there's nothing with which I can compare it to. Mhm.
0: Oh, that's great. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple quick questions before we wrap it up here. And I guess this goes out to the young women and people that are listening. If you were to give advice to your 20 year old self, Mm. what would that be?
1: Well, usually I, when I think about what I would say to my younger self and my 20 year old self um, is learn to code. That would be, (laughs) that would be the first thing. Um, But then I would say, uh, don't sweat the small stuff. Um, mm. And I mean, you know, it's like so easy to say that, God, it's so cliche. I wish I hadn't just said that. But what I mean by that is um, I look back at my 20s and I really don't remember a lot about them. And the reason that I don't wasn't just because I was doing tons of drugs, it was that I was trying so hard to be everything that I thought people wanted me to be mm. that I actually didn't start with a core sense of myself. Mm. I was just, all over the place, trying to be all things to all people, that I I really wasn't there. Mm. And that's why I don't remember it. So the one thing that I would say is you you have got to spend time with yourself. The, yeah. the sooner you do that, the sooner you stop worrying um, that you are defined by your boyfriend, by your group of friends, by what you study in school or what you're wearing or what you look like if you start with a core sense of yourself and your values, all of that will be reflected in who you choose mm. to be around, uh, what you choose to do with your life, how you pursue it, and even what you wear. Mm. Because you will have a real true understanding that, you know, things things are transitory, but you will, you will understand your own evolution. Yeah,
0: that's great. I love that. So one last question is, what does live inspiration mean to you?
1: I think it means to live. Inspiration means to live authentically Mm. because not only will you be inspired, you will inspire.
0: Absolutely. I love that. Well, Stacy, I acknowledge you for being who you are.
1: Thank you. (laughs) And
0: for the difference that you're making in the world, the world needs more people like you.
1: Nick, thank you so much.
0: Yeah. And uh, where can people find you on the interwebs?
1: Well, they can find me on the interwebs everywhere except a website because I just don't have one. <laughs> um, you know, on Twitter, I'm at Stacey London and on Instagram, I'm at Stacey London real, which probably should have been official. And I apologize right now to Stacey London on Instagram because she's had to put up with attention that she didn't necessarily want. And she's just as real as me. <laughs> and I just want to make that clear. Um and that's usually uh, you know those are the um platforms that I'm mostly on.
0: Yeah, I mean Instagram and Twitter. Instagram's the best.
1: Yeah, Instagram is the best. I'm sorry. I just I have not gotten into Snapchat. I just don't have that kind of time. It takes a lot to make a like mm-hmm. a well-edited Snapchat and also if your Snapchat is over 2 minutes I don't know if anybody can pay attention for that long. Like, I mean, that, I just, I, I think it defeats the point of Snapchat. I'm not sure what the point is. I mean, I'm sure you know better than I do. Yeah, I'm Snapchat retarded, so don't ask me. My favorite thing about Snapchat is the name Snapchat. Snap. Snapchat It's just so good. But thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Shop Talk Radio with Stacey London. I am your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could help us out by leaving us good review over on iTunes, sharing the episode on Facebook or Twitter. We'd also love to see where you're listening to the show. So you can Instagram hashtag Shop Talk Radio or at reply me at Nick Onkin. And I would love to see where you're being inspired. Also, this show is for you. So we'd love to hear your questions, comments, things that you would love to learn and other guests that you would like to hear from. So tweet at me. I will be doing a survey here in the next week or two to send out and would love for you guys to fill that out. But that'll go out on Twitter, at Nick Onkin, Facebook, and possibly Instagram. So with that, we'll see you next time.